Heavenly Father, again, Lord, I thank you so much for the blessings that you give to us. And Lord, I thank you for your son, that he came, that he left your side to come to be with us. He came and took on flesh and to live the life that we should have lived, to live the perfect life that we couldn't do on our own. Lord, he did that so he could take our sins. Father, I thank you for that. And I thank you that through him we have hope. Father, as we dig into your word this morning, I pray that you will help us to see that hope. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as I said, um, we're starting our Christmas um, series this morning, um, and this is Advent 2018. Uh, That's the title of the series is Advent 2018, and kind of a subtitle is Awaiting Our Savior. A lot of you might be thinking, well, why are we awaiting? He already came. Well, I think you'll see why in a little bit. And you might also notice that I've actually got paper notes this morning. Um, When I went to turn on my tablet, it said the battery was critically low. And I thought, oh, no, I forgot to charge it. So I had to go and print my notes real quick. And, uh, well, last week, Mom said I'd get a little too attached to my notes anyway. So maybe I won't be as much or as attached to them if they're paper instead of right in my hand. Um, But anyway, uh, we are in Advent this year. And so Advent... The definition of the word Advent, this isn't just a Christian term, this isn't just a church term, but the word Advent means, and it means the arrival of an important person, place, or thing. So the church, in the church, when we talk about Advent, we are celebrating Jesus coming to the earth. See, during Christmas, we celebrate Jesus' birth. We celebrate that he came to, uh, he came as God's gift for us. We celebrate that by exchanging gifts with each other. However, Jesus' birth was his first advent. I say first because he's going to come back. As we look through scripture, we recognize that Jesus is coming back. And when he returns, it will be his second advent. So during the time of advent, we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Jesus' birth. We look back to his birth. And we also look forward to his second coming. So that's why we talk about Advent. And uh, as Christians, we celebrate Advent by looking first, um, we look at his first coming to prepare for his second coming. So in summary, Advent is a time of hopeful expectation, waiting for the Messiah. One way we celebrate Advent is by focusing on four major themes in the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And those four themes are hope, joy, peace, and love. So hope, joy, peace, and love. So we're going to focus on one of those themes during each of the four weeks uh, leading up to Christmas. Um, And these are the four themes. Hope is this week. Next week is going to be joy. On the 16th is going to be peace. And then remember that night we'll have our our Christmas party at the house. And then on the 23rd, the last Sunday is love. So the question we will bring to the sermon series each week, the question we're going to bring is, what does Advent mean for us? as 21st century disciples of Jesus. We can look at Advent through the lens of Old Testament Jews. We can look at Advent through the lens of New Testament Christians. Or we can look at Advent through the lens of 21st century disciples. I hope what you will see through all of that is that Advent has a lot of the same meaning no matter when you live. But we want to ask specifically, what does Advent mean for us as 21st century disciples of Jesus? So this morning, we're going to focus on hope. Um, and our main focus scripture, if I can get this to go, there we go. Our main focus scripture is going to be Micah 5.2. And this is hope. The main idea is that just as the Old, just Old Testament Jews hoped for the Messiah, we hope for Jesus' second coming. Again, the main idea, just as the Old Testament Jews hoped for the Messiah, 
we hope for Jesus' second coming. And we see that played out in three different ways. The Jews were hoping for a Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah that they hoped for. And finally, that Jesus' return is our ultimate hope. So we'll jump right into that. Um, it's a short section this time. Micah 5.2 says, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity. And uh, his origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. So the first thing that jumps out to us, we see the name Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Well, we know the term Bethlehem. We're pretty familiar with that. Um, we know that because it's where Jesus was born. But what about Ephrathah there? And so Ephrathah was the region. Uh, Bethlehem was a city. Um, and so this, distingu- this designation is almost like saying Hope Mills in Cumberland County. All right, so when they're saying Bethlehem, Ephrathah, that's the town and the region that it was in. And then it says that it was small among the clans of Judah. Now, why is that significant? We see in Joshua uh, 15, Joshua chapter 15, this is after um, the Jews had gone through, uh, they had left Egypt. They had wandered through the desert for 40 years. They finally get to the promised land. And when they get there, it's occupied already by the Canaanites. And so God tells Joshua, he says, I'm going to lead you as a military leader to drive out these other nations from this promised land. And so after they go through and they drive out all these other nations from that land, uh, in Joshua 15, um, they list all the different cities that are going to be given to the different clans, the different tribes of, uh, of Israel. And specifically, verses 20 to 63, that lists cities that were given to the tribe of Judah. Now, there are 95 different cities that are listed, 95 different cities that are named that are given to Judah. Right right here it says, Bethlehem, small among the clans of Judah. In that list of 95 cities that were named, guess what town was not named? Bethlehem. Bethlehem was such a small town, it was so insignificant of a town that it wasn't even listed among the almost 100 cities that were listed and that were given to the tribe of Judah. See, Bethlehem was located in the territory given to the tribe of Judah, but it was so insignificant, it was not insignificant enough uh, to be listed among the cities of Judah when the land was given to the, uh, was divided in the time of uh, Joshua. So how many of you in here have ever been to Autryville? Couple, most of you have been to Autryville. It's a big town, isn't it? Mm. No, it's a very small town. Um, it's not named in any. Uh, it's not named on most maps. You can never see it in the news, and especially not on uh, national broadcast. But about seven or eight years ago, you might remember we had a, a pretty big string of tornadoes come through. Um, during that time, we were at a birthday party over in Autryville. And we're sitting there, we're at the birthday party, and we knew the weather was bad. So all the kids were playing, and we kind of had one eye on the kids, and everybody had one eye on the the news, just to kind of keep an eye on how things were going. And as we're there, you know, the weather seems to just keep getting worse and worse. And all of a sudden, on the Weather Channel, so this is national broadcast, on the Weather Channel, they say, tornado warning in Autryville, North Carolina. All right, so now think about that. If you're in Fayetteville, and you hear something about a tornado warning in Fayetteville, Fayetteville's big enough where you might think, oh, well, it's, it could be on the other side of Fayetteville, and, and, and I, I won't even know about it. But if you're in Autryville, and they say there's a tornado warning in Autryville, you know, your chances kind of go up that it's really close to you. And so when we hear this tornado warning in Autryville, it's kind of a big deal. 
I mean, not only was it a big deal that it was a tornado warning, but Autryville is such a small town being named in a national broadcast. Uh, so there's a, uh, sorry, Bethlehem is a very small town and very similar to in that aspect, that you wouldn't really hear about Bethlehem unless there was something big going on there. But here, Micah names Bethlehem, um, and he says that uh, a ruler will come from you. Now, would this be the first time that the Jews would have heard of Bethlehem? No, it wouldn't. You see, Micah is one of the minor prophets, and this would have been um, during the last period of history before the New Testament. It would have been in the last period of Jewish history before the New Testament was given. Um, and so before this happened, we would have had Boaz and Ruth, which we've been studying on Wednesday nights. They would have been there, or they were from there. But also, one more very important figure coming from Bethlehem would have been King David. Bethlehem is called the city of David. All right, so it says, One will come from you who will be ruler over Israel for me. So this prophecy says that a king of Israel will come from Bethlehem. This hope for Israel goes all the way back to the time when Israel fell to the Assyrians and Judah fell to the Babylonians. See, over the summer, we had a sermon series in the book of Zephaniah, and we talked a lot about the fall of these two kingdoms. But just to recap, let me give you a quick rundown on the history here. So we hear that God created the heavens and the earth, and there are some, uh, a lot of really big things happen there, but... Eventually, the Israelites end up being enslaved in Egypt. God raises up Moses, and Moses comes, and he frees the Israelites from Egypt. And they leave Egypt, and they wander in the desert for 40 years. And then at the end of 40 years, God brings Joshua to the the head, to the leadership. And Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land. I already said he he leads a military campaign to drive out all the foreign nations that that are there. And then they set up... Israel as a, an independent nation. But at that time, there was no centralized leadership. There was no king in Israel. This is called the period of the judges. During the period of the judges, there were kind of some local government, government uh, organizations, but no centralized governing agency. And so what would happen, a lot of times you hear in the book of Judges where the people kind of went their own way and they did their own thing, and it says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then a lot of time, well, most of the time it was the Philistines, but the, the foreign nations around would come in and they would um, bring that region again under slavery or uh, start to terrorize them or, or bring in different military campaigns to, to um, hurt the nation of Israel. And this would go on for a little while. And then the people would cry out, God, please save us. And God would raise up a judge from that area to drive out the foreign nations. And during that time, there was a lot of bad things that happened in Israel. And so after a while, the Israelites got tired of it. And they said, we want a king. We want somebody who's going to lead us. Somebody who's going to lead us to follow God's will. Now Samuel was the last judge at the time. And Samuel says, y'all, this isn't a good idea. You shouldn't do this. And they said, we want a king. So Samuel says, okay. And so he anoints Saul. Saul was the first king. And then you had David and David's son, Solomon. But then after Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel was split into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom, which kept the name of Israel, and the southern kingdom, which, kept the, or which took the name of Judah. And then the northern kingdom had a lot of evil kings, and these kings took uh, the nation of Israel, again, out of God's will several times. Time after time again, they, they, these kings would lead them away from God. And so God decided to punish them, and he brought the Assyrians to defeat that kingdom. 
So he brought the Assyrians to defeat that kingdom. And then the, uh, the nation of Judah, the kingdom of Judah in the south, they followed God's will a little bit better. It still was, they still weren't perfect, but they followed God's will a little bit better. So God allowed them to survive a little bit longer. However, they again had king after king after king who came in and did evil in the sight of the Lord and led the people away from God. And so eventually, God uh, punished them as well. And he brought the Babylonians in to defeat them. And from the time that the Babylonians defeated the Israelites, they, had not, they were not under their own leadership. They were under the leadership of some other country who would maybe set up a king who was more of a puppet, uh, who would do the will of whatever king from other nation was leading them or was ruling over them. So the Israelites, they wanted a king of their own. They wanted somebody from their own nation. They wanted somebody from their own people to be their leader. And so we see when Micah says, one will come from you to be a ruler over Israel for me, the Israelites are hoping for this. They're longing for this. They're longing for somebody to come in and to be their king. They want somebody to come in and to drive out all these other foreign nations who have been ruling over them for hundreds of years. Sorry, I got way behind in my notes. Um, so when Micah promises that a ruler over Israel would come from Bethlehem, it would be a big deal. The Israelites were tired of being ruled by others and paying taxes to a foreign government and being forced to acknowledge other gods, other gods from the one true God, Yahweh. And not only that, they also knew about God's promise to David. Now, God's promise to David has the name of the Davidic covenant. This is just the covenant that God made with David, the Davidic covenant. And we see that in 2 Samuel 7, 12. It says, when your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. So here the Israelites know about this promise that God made to David. They knew that some king was going to come from the line of David, from David's descendants, and he was going to set up a kingdom there in Israel to be a king forever. So not only are they tired of these other governments leading over them and ruling over them, they also have this promise from God that somebody is going to come from, the, the, from David's lineage to be their king. Now there's another line in here that sounds rather odd. It says that his origin, oh sorry, there's that um, passage from Samuel. It says his origin is from antiquity. Now this part sounds pretty odd, a little off if you think about it. So Micah is saying that there's going to be a king who is born, who's existed forever. That doesn't make a lot of sense. How can somebody be born in the future if they have existed from before time? That's really, really weird if you think about it. But what we will see is that Jesus is the answer to all of this. Jesus is the answer to all of this hopeful expectation. First, we see that he would be born in Bethlehem. We see that in Luke. Come on. There we go. We see that in Luke chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 2, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. The first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his hometown. 
Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them available in the inn, no room, no guest room available for them. Sorry. Uh, So we see that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So that answers that first part of that prophecy, that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem, this little tiny town of Bethlehem. Next, we, uh, we have to address this issue about the king who existed before time, yet he's going to be born at a later date. How is this prophet writing about a king who's still not yet born, but has already existed since before time? Again, we see that in, or early in one of the Gospels. This is John chapter 1. Uh, And a lot of times you'll hear this called the prologue of John, kind of the the introduction. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet darkness did not overcome it. And we skip down a little bit. Into verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me, because He existed before me. So we see that Jesus is this King who's going to be born, but has already existed from before time. In the, the, the very beginning here of this John passage, we see that in the very beginning was the Word. The Word was active in creation. Nothing was created that was not created through the Word. And this Word is the light of men. He is our life. Well, we keep talking about the Word, the Word, the Word. But then we get down to verse 14. It says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus has existed since before creation, because He is God. Jesus is God, so He is eternal. He has existed since before creation, but yet He comes to take on a physical body. He comes to be born of a woman, to be born of the Virgin Mary, so that He can take our sins, so that He can take the punishment that we deserve. See, Jesus existed before creation with the Father. We see everything that was created through Jesus, or everything was created through Jesus, and He is the source of life. But what about the royal aspect of this messianic prophecy? It said it's going to be a king. Again, I say we need to go back to Luke. We will see uh, that Jesus fulfills the royal aspect of this prophecy. It says, Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So here, the angel Gabriel is telling Mary that her baby is going to fulfill the Davidic covenant. That there is going to be this boy born. Mary is in the family lineage of David. Uh, We see that. And we also see that Joseph was in the family lineage of David as well. So a lot of times people will point to Joseph's family tree and say that Joseph is in the lineage of David. And so Jesus has, uh, he has that family right to the throne. And then people will turn around and say, yeah, but Joseph wasn't his real father. 
Okay, Mary was also in the lineage of David. So Jesus gets that royal bloodline from both sides. Uh, it says that he will be the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So he is fulfilling that Davidic covenant. And it says he will rule over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. There's that eternal kingdom. But this is the point, um, sorry, this is the point that the Jews in Jesus' time had the hardest time dealing with. They were expecting the Messiah to come in and to take the throne and to kick out the Romans. Because remember I said, since the time that the Babylonians came in and defeated Judah, there was not an Israelite king. And so they wanted an Israelite king to come in and to kick out all the foreign, gov- or the, the foreign governments, no matter which one it was. In Jesus' time, it happened to be the Romans. And so they were expecting the Messiah to come in and to be a military leader like Joshua, to kick out all these other foreign nations out of the promised land. And when we see Jesus ride into Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday, that's why they had such a triumphant celebration. They were giving him a king's entrance. They were expecting Jesus to come in and to take the throne and to kick out the Romans. They were celebrating that. This is their royal procession that they were giving him. They were willing to fight under his leadership. And they were happy to call Jesus the Messiah if he was going to set up his earthly kingdom right then and there. But if you turn to John 18, we see that Jesus wasn't interested in that. So, or he wasn't interested. So the Jews, instead of, wanting, uh, in, instead of following his leadership into war, they accused him of ba- blasphemy and they wanted him killed. When Jesus was on trial, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? So let's read how that conversation goes. Jesus answers, Are you asking this on your own, or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and the chiefs, the chief priests, handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is is not from here. My kingdom is not from here. See, Jesus says that his kingdom is not of this world because his kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. One day, one day, he will call all of his believers into his, this heavenly kingdom. See, none of us are deserving of this kingdom, though. None of us deserve to be called into the heavenly kingdom because we sin. And our sin pushes us away from God. And because of our sin, we, we don't deserve to be in Jesus' heavenly kingdom. And so he came the first time to redeem a people for his kingdom. He came the first time so that he could pay the penalty for that sin to reconcile our relationship with God. And when we place our faith in him, when we believe in his life, death, and resurrection, then he gives us that invitation into his kingdom. He gives us the right. He gives us his righteousness so that we can go into his kingdom. But this gift, the real gift of Christmas, must be received. You must place your faith in Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection, the perfect sacrifice for your sin. Then he will return to be the perfect king. This is what we hope for during Advent. See, the Jews hoped for the Messiah to come. Jesus came, and he answered that hope. But we look back to Jesus' birth in hopeful expectation for his return. Yes, we celebrate the birth of the Savior. We should celebrate the birth of the Savior of the world. But at the same time, we also hope for his return. So we get to our application points. 
Now in our application, again, we have to remember, uh, what does Advent mean for us? This is the, the question that we're bringing to each week. What does Advent mean for us as 21st century disciples of Jesus? So there's that word disciple. I know we went through the whole book of Acts and I focused on our disciple-making strategy. I spent a long time in there and I'm coming back to that word disciple, right? What does it mean for us as 21st century disciples of Jesus? So I want to review the definition of a disciple. I get my definition of a disciple from Matthew 4, 19, where Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. So a disciple of Jesus is identified by and growing in three areas of Christlikeness, and that's knowing, being, and doing. And uh, a disciple grows in knowing because he has accepted, or the disciple has accepted salvation through Jesus and the lordship of Jesus. So he's changing the way that we think. He's changing the way that we know our understanding of what truth is. It's coming more in line with the truth, coming more in line with Jesus. Secondly, Jesus changes us in our being. A a disciple is constantly being transformed through the gospel and the Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus, to, uh, to have a heart more like God. And finally, in doing, this is where Jesus says he's going to make us fish for people. That's an activity, right? So in the doing, a disciple is growing in doing because he is doing the work of Jesus. A disciple is doing more and more and more of the mission of Jesus. Some people relate these three to head, heart, and hands. I'm okay with that. I have no problem with that. Um, I tend to stick with knowing, being, and doing. Um, same idea though. And so we want to think, how does this, how does Advent apply to us? in our knowing, being, and doing. So first, it's uh, to know that Jesus answers the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. See, many many scholars will tell you that, I'm sorry, many scholars will tell you that Matthew wrote his account of Jesus' life to show how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. So if you want to grow in your area of knowing how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecies, read the book of Matthew. And as you read through the book of Matthew, take note of when Matthew says, so it would be fulfilled. Because Matthew is using that as a sign to point to the Old Testament. And a lot of times you'll see in Matthew where it's bold or indented because that's a quote from the Old Testament. So Matthew wrote his gospel, his version of the gospel, to show how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. You want to grow in your knowing of how Jesus does that? Read through the gospel of Matthew. Um, if you have footnotes in your Bible, check the footnotes on those passages and go back and read the, the, those passages in the Old Testament that Matthew is pointing to. And the, second, um, the second part of our application is being, and that's to be hopeful. There are so many people in our lives who have nothing to hope for. They feel the brokenness of sin, but they have no answer for it. We talk about hope, but they lack real hope. I look at... My favorite football team, the Green Bay Packers, they've given me a lot of things to hope for over the past few years, but this year, they're not having a great season. And if I put my ultimate hope in Aaron Rodgers and his arm, he's failing me this year. But I know that Aaron Rodgers is not my ultimate hope. I can hope that they go and win the Super Bowl. There's still a chance that they can make it into the playoffs. That's a slim chance, but there's still a chance they can make it into the playoffs. But that's not my ultimate hope. My ultimate hope is in Jesus Because whether or not Aaron Rodgers wins or loses, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. But what does matter is that Jesus is coming back. And I can put my hope in that. And I know that he's coming back to call his believers into his kingdom. That's where my hope is. No matter how bad things are getting now, no matter how tough life is, because life is tough. 
There's no doubt about that. Life is hard. There are a lot of hard things that happen around us. And if we don't have the hope of Jesus, we have no answer for the sin, the brokenness of sin around us. And finally, the doing aspect of our application is to spread the hope of Jesus. See, the news of Jesus's, or the news of the birth of our Savior brings hope to the life that is burdened by the brokenness of sin. Through our Savior, we are redeemed from our sin and brought back into right relationship with our Creator. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much again for sending your Son. Lord, I thank you for the hope that He brings to us. I thank you for the hope that is in His promises the hope that we have in Him coming back to call His people into His kingdom. God, I thank You so much that You have given Your Son as the greatest gift of Christmas. And Father, I pray as we celebrate Christmas this year, You will help us to remember the hope of Jesus. And You will help us to share that with those around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we've come to our point of response. You can come to the front and pray at the cross, or you can come over and pray with me, or you can pray where you're seated. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning.